and good morning everyone or good afternoon or good evening whichever the case may be around this rotating globe welcome to another edition and believe me this is going to be one for the classic archive of the other side of midnight that magical time between dusk and dawn when well just about anything these days can happen and remember when it used to be confined to these hours of the night the wee hours and our our guest is, is really doing us a great favor. He's actually uh, in Miami, so for him it literally is the other side of midnight, as it is in New York and Washington. And out here in the Land of Enchantment, it's about 10 p.m., and the wind is rising. Uh, we had a major power failure this afternoon. The Internet has gone out three or four times as we were getting ready for the show. So if we suddenly disappear, don't go away because Keith has got uh, Plan B racked up and uh, you will hear something remarkably interesting that we did uh, a couple weeks ago, but uh, we may not be able to get back on the air if I lose power or lose internet or whatever. I mean, it may be the land of enchantment, but it's a land of enchantment without infrastructure. And I'm praying that the money that the Congress allocated, you know, trillion plus for infrastructure, some of it winds up out here because our power grid is really, I mean, it's like just barely keeping ahead of Texas, and you know Texas uh, is not good at all. Anyway, enough housekeeping. Ah, housekeeping, housekeeping. Uh, we're going to be talking tonight about time capsules in the solar system, both ours, and I have the perfect person to talk to about this. And when uh, this kind of came up uh, a la the DART mission and the fact that... Uh, it's my model and a bunch of other people on the team's model that, in fact, NASA clobbered an ancient time capsule. And we have data, so that's going to be part of our discussion tonight. But the individual that I reached out to call, uh, Nova Spivak, has been in the business of creating time capsules for modern humans to send into the solar system for several years now. And he's been on the show a couple of times before. Um, it was time to get him back because there's new news. And for a lot of you folks that may have missed uh, his first appearances, uh, we're going to track back to the beginning of the story. And there is a real MacGuffin because it was Nova who suggested to Elon Musk that the bright red roadster, the first payload on the heavy uh, Falcon Heavy booster, that left Earth a couple of years ago, or maybe even more, you lose track of time when other stuff is going on, uh, actually carry in the glove compartment a crystalline set uh, of Isaac Asimov's incredibly prescient Foundation trilogy. And so we may actually have uh, Nova go uh, briefly into that story because that was the first of a modern set of time capsules as I was running upstairs to get something that I'd obviously forgotten because the studio is downstairs and I was listening to the wind kind of howling around the eaves outside. It's really, it's a very dramatic night here in New Mexico. I realized that I had not sent to Keith a link, which is very important because it turns out in this growth industry of sending time capsules in the modern era around the solar system that Eric Burgess and me and Carl Sagan were the first, and uh, when we get uh, when we get Nova on, I, I will tell that story briefly for those of you who are not uh, uh, cognizant of it. In the meantime, uh, for those who are new, what you want to do, we have a section of the show page on the internet called Radio with Pictures. So what you want to do is you want to go to our URL, which is the other side of midnight.com. That's how you find us, the other side of midnight.com except no substitutes. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically, because I love writing dramatically, uh, time capsules in the solar system, ours and theirs. So you click on that, that takes you to the guest page. Right under the guest page banner, you will see, it says fastings to items, click on my name. That takes you down to the page section where we have news. And this week, uh, speaking of theirs, uh, NASA officially announced its UFO study team, which will include scientists, communications experts, 
and an actual astronaut, um, uh, Scott Kelly, uh, Mark Kelly's brother, who spent a lot of time on the space station. I think, I, I forget which one spent like over a year on the on the uh, International Space Station, and there was all kinds of interesting longitudinal studies of their biology and medicine, and and I think it was Scott. Anyway, their telomeres grew, and telomeres, well, we'll talk to know about that, but telomeres are important in biology, and the common wisdom is that the shorter your telomeres, the shorter your lifespan. So Scott's, or was it Mark? I don't remember. When they, when it, the one of the brothers spent the uh, the uh, year on the space station, with the other brother being being that he was a twin, being the control on Earth, um, his telomeres lengthened. And I have not followed the story to know whether they went back to quote normal on the ground or not. That's something that uh, one of our listeners can find out. Google is your friend, and then you can email us, or you can send, or you can call up on uh, Blog Talk when we open calls at the end of the show, and you can tell us. Anyway, uh, item number one is this space.com story on the NASA UFO study, which contains kind of the bare outlines. Item number two right under it is the actual link to the study. This is the announcement. Uh, there's a link in the announcement on the NASA uh, .gov homepage in Washington to the actual PDF, which describes in great detail who's involved, what their protocols are going to be, and all that. I mean, did you ever think, did you ever imagine that there would be a time when NASA would announce officially it's looking into UFOs? Now, of course, they've changed the name uh, per the Pentagon office for all anomaly research or something, and the the, the operative term is UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. You know, you can't be anybody in the U.S. government without an acronym. But um, anyway, that's all going on. At the same time, this takes us down to item number three, there is a study which was documented by a news story in Newsweek, um, which reached the conclusion that if the U.S. government announced that we had found aliens, this announcement could trigger a global conflict a la thermonuclear World War III. And that would be a bad hair day for everybody. And I think it is such dribble and fear porn. But what I'm interested in is every time you make one step forward in understanding our real environment and who's been interacting with us and how ancient we are, and that's back to the subject of time capsules. Um, the fear porn artists have to get their digs in, and so they have uh, published this study. I'm not quite sure who did the study and where and all that's in the article, so go read it. But it, it may or may not be worth your time other than to monitor the fact that Newton's, you know, um, uh, second law is, uh, third law is fully in operation. For every positive action on this front, there is a negative reaction. And this is incredibly reactionary. Um, there is one little germ of truth, I believe, in the study, because they do talk about a government that tries to keep its contact with aliens or ETs uh, secret from everybody else on Earth. But of course, what gives the lie to that perspective is that the study authors obviously do not understand or are not willing to acknowledge publicly that all governments on Earth worthy of their salt have known we've been visited both in the ancient past and contemporaneously, even now, uh, in whatever's going on in the skies over Ukraine. And so the idea of keeping you know, contact and super secret technologies uh, apart from the rest of the world and somehow gaining a geopolitical edge you know, is just somebody's wet dream. Uh, God, I wonder if Henry Kissinger was involved in this study. Anyway, um, item number four. Now, as you know, we're going to talk a lot about this tonight because in our model, what NASA did with the DART, which was the directed uh, asteroid uh, uh, redirection test uh, on the 26th of September, sending a 1,200-pound uh, vending machine-sized spacecraft on a 10-month journey out to the asteroid belt, kind of, uh, seven million miles away when this object was closest. 
um, and clobbering it by direct impact, that mission turns out to be much more interesting than the mainstream has kind of cottoned to as yet. Because as you know from the last couple, three weeks, as we presented data on the background and the imagery and the analysis of the orbit change of the impact with uh, the little satellite of Didymos, Didymos was the big guy, half a mile wide object, being orbited every 11 hours, 55 minutes by a little guy, uh, less than 600 foot uh, across uh, secondary satellite moonlit called Dimorphos. And these are both Greek and they both have very interesting higher level, you know, symbolic names. So if you want to Google them and find out what they mean or wait till Ron comes on maybe in the third hour and tells us all again what they both mean. I mean, the choice of the of the names in NASA is never trivial because they are steeped, steeped, steeped in mythology, deep level mythology, five layers, Emily Dickinsonian layers deep. And so when I saw the two names, I thought, well, there really has to be uh, something amazing about the other levels of meaning. And it turns out for dimorphos, which means two forms, that that meaning, frankly, could be right in your face about what they really did, that they're not copying to yet. Now, they may never, but the fact that there are all kinds of honest observers looking at these remnants of the Didymo system after impact all over the world, amateurs with incredibly good equipment who have spotted all kinds of interesting anomalies after the impact three plus weeks ago, uh, tells me that maybe there will be some you know, come to Jesus moments at, on the part of NASA and they will finally kind of try to tell us the truth. Uh, one of the interesting things is that NASA uh, this week published a new Hubble image, which is item number four in our radio with pictures. And if you look very carefully, you'll see there that uh, several things happened and these photographs are posted in previous weeks, so I did not duplicate them tonight. But as you know, in the days after impact, the Didymo system grew an extraordinarily long tail pointing away from the sun, very narrow, looking almost like some kind of a searchlight beam It was that narrow. The conventional model, of course, is that it's composed of very tiny, tiny micron-sized flecks of dust, and because they're so tiny, they're very light, and the solar radiation pressure can move them around, and so they tend to blow away from the sun and give you comet tails, dust tails, and the dust tail out behind uh, Didymos, the Didymos system. Well, in the last few days, between the 2nd and the 8th, which is a few days, uh, Hubble spotted another tail. So the Didymos system, after impact, has now grown two tails. And I'm willing to bet that one of them is a dust tail, and the other one is an ion tail. And we will not get into any of those details until I bring uh, uh, Nova Spivak on. So without further ado, uh, if you want to kind of follow along under the fast links to items, you'll see fast links to bios. Click on that, and that will take you to uh, 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 Nova's bio, which I think is here. We are okay. Nova Spivak is a technology entrepreneur, an investor, an innovator, a futurist with a career spanning more than two decades of industry-leading breakthroughs. He has helped to build dozens of ventures and nearly 100 patents, collectively generating billions of dollars in market value, including multiple IPOs and acquisitions by Apple, Facebook, Samsung, Disney, the mouse, and others. Nova's ranked among the top 20 futurists worldwide and is a top LA power player in technology. He was a has advised governments, presidential campaigns, Fortune 10 global corporations, leading consumer brands, venture funds, incubators, and tech startups. And that's all kind of, you know, tech street talk. He is also the founder and CEO of Magical, a science and technology venture studio based in Los Angeles, where he works as a venture producer to fund and incubate breakthrough companies. Um, he flew to the edge of space in 1999, did zero-gravity training with Peter Diamandis and Richard Garriott with the Russian Air Force and the Russian Space Agency. 
but probably most interesting and relevant to tonight is he is the co-founder and chairman of the Arch Mission Foundation, which is building a solar system scale backup of Earth. The Arch Mission successfully launched the first permanent library into space February 6, 2018, as the secret payload of Elon Musk's uh, Falcon Heavy test launch of his bright red roadster. A second archive landed on the moon in 2019 uh, with Space IL containing the Wikipedia and many other data sets of compendiums of, in fact, the entire known history of Earth. And rather than read from a dry, you know, thing you can read yourself, let me bring on my guest tonight, Nova Spivak. Come on down. Well, hello. Hi there. It's been too long. It's been a while. All kinds of really cool stuff is going on. But for those who are kind of new to this game, kind of start at square run. How did Nova Spivak, uh, investor, money guy, tech innovator, written up by Fortune, how did he wind up getting into the huge humanity time capsule business and spreading them around the solar system? Well, since you asked, um, <laughs> did I ever tell you about the dream I had when I was eight? No. Okay. Well, I guess I'm going to digress. When I was uh, eight years old, I had a very unusual dream uh, in which I saw my life as an adult. Um, wow. When there was a uh, some kind of an environmental catastrophe that caused the something like a nuclear winter. It caused the air to be harmful to breathe. And the governments of the world knew about this before it happened. This is all in your dream. I was eight, yeah. Um, the governments of the world had known about this and they'd been planning for it for decades. Um, because not only was it toxic, but it was like a nuclear winter is very cold. Uh, and so life on the surface of Earth uh, basically became unsustainable uh, when this event took place. Um, they prepared by building all of these underground cities to try to shelter you know, sufficient parts of the population to rebuild afterwards. And there was a lottery system. Um, as luck would have it, I was one of the people that got to go to one of these underground cities. Um, the rest of the people who did not go to these cities perished. Mm. Um, those of us who did. This is a hell of a dream for an eight-year-old. You realize yeah, that, right? Yeah, yeah. Those you must of have us been who scared shitless, and we can say no. That. I mean, in the dream, it was uh, I wasn't scared at all. I was living my life as an adult in the dream. Oh, and, really? Uh, anyway, so we ended up living in these underground cities, which were, you know, kind of like THX eleven thirty-eight, kind of you know, underground, very kind of institutional government-designed shelters. Mm with many, many, many levels, each one could house something like 20,000 people. They were big. Um, or the, and, or the, uh, the salt mines in uh, Deep Impact. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, it was not the greatest lifestyle living in these underground cities. Um, it was pretty boring and, you know, claustrophobic. Um, as, as things developed, I, became, I, I had been in that dream, in the dream, I had been a technical or scientific person um, as, um, as an adult. And, and I made friends with the other scientists and people like that. Uh, and we decided to begin a study of the air quality on the surface. And so in this dream, over many years, we systematically started doing air sampling and other scientific tests of temperature and, and atmospheric parameters on the surface, basically at the top of these underground cities, which are like big cylinders, um, there were all of these sort of air intakes and filters and sensors and all kinds of things. So we, we, we kind of would go up there to the, you know, many, many, many levels up to the surface. And you, know, you had to wear these special suits and everything. And we would, you know, test these instruments and bring down the data. And so we started graphing this data over a long period of time. And we were able to project um, that, you know, several years off into the future, um, the conditions were going to start to improve at least enough that humans could live on the surface again. It was still going to be an ice age, but it wasn't going to be fatal. 
Okay, question, wasn't, question. Yeah. Was this one dream yeah, or one a dream. recurring dream? No, this was one dream. So, um, Did you ever see the Star Trek Generations where Picard goes, yeah. goes into kind of some kind of shock on the bridge? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and in 20 minutes, cool. he lives his entire life as an ET on some other planet? Yeah, that's the... You know, kind that's of like what, Rumpel. That's what this sounds like. It's it's like what was it, Rumpelstiltskin, or something like that. It was you know those kind of stories of people who fall asleep, you know, and then right. they they um, you know they live an entire life and then they wake up. It's only fifteen minutes has gone by. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's so it continues, and um, we we went to the authorities and told them about our data. Um, the other thing that we found was that the cylinders had been built into permafrost, and as as the temperature oh. was projected to increase, the cylinders were going to start to sink. And at a certain point, all of the filtration systems at the top would be under the mud. And so we told the authorities about this, and they told us, you know, don't scare everybody. This is not going to happen. It's just your data might not be correct. We don't want to get people's hopes up. You know, this is classified. You can't talk about this. Anyway, we continued to do our studies and we made secret preparations to leave ahead of this event of, of the cylinder sinking and try to find a place where we could set up a base camp. And then we would try to salvage as much as we could and, and get as many people to come with us as possible before these things sank. So we went off. Um, some of us snuck out and we, we scouted this kind of Alaskan style, kind of very cold and snowy and windy terrain, eventually finding an area with natural caves, you know, many, many kilometers away. Um, but that was a place where we felt we could establish a, a, a base camp. So we set up a camp, uh, very primitive conditions. And then um, a year or so, a couple years later, I'm not sure how long it was, but we, when this, when this, um, warming was taking place and the cylinders were sinking we we went back and tried to convince more people to come with us and we got a lot of equipment and medical supplies and every kind of book or tool we could get and we took it with a couple hundred people who we could convince to leave everybody else stayed and uh, we set up our camp and the people who stayed years later ended up all suffocating when these things went under the mud hmm. so then we were left you know a few hundred people living in these kind of caves it was still pretty cold um, and you know harsh and we didn't have electricity we didn't have basic things um, but we built sort of community and survived and at that point you know now I was older and all of us who were the elders at that point um, decided that since we had no contact with anybody else anywhere on the anywhere else on earth we didn't know if we were the last people alive but we felt that you know we were the people who had lived in the previous world and it was our responsibility to try to preserve whatever we knew for future generations so um, we had a series of meetings about what to do and we eventually came up with this idea that we would interview everybody and record all of their knowledge uh, in a book uh, or a set of books mm -hmm. which would sort of be an encyclopedia of everything we knew that might be useful and so we elected one person to, to do that, and that person turned out to be me. And the title was of, of that role was the keeper of the book. So I became the keeper of the book and spent the rest of that life interviewing people. A time and, you know, capsule. Write, yeah, writing their stories in this book. And then I died. But it con the dream continued, and it followed my descendants for I don't know how many generations, maybe dozens or a hundred generations. It was really hard to tell because it sped up. Um, but as it sped up, the atmosphere changed and improved. And you know, eventually this Arctic or ice age kind of climate subsided and it became more of a normal climate like we're used to now. Um, and at that point, the way the dream ended was that uh, I was kind of gliding along the forest floor at, during at magic hour in the evening mm -hmm. at dusk. And uh, off in the distance, there were this hill through the trees and you could see these natural caves. And I recognized one of those caves as the one that, you know, was my cave. And as we got closer, I could see, you know, there was a man sitting at a table in the cave writing in this big book. So at this point in the dream, you're a great, great, great descendant. I'm a, well, I'm a camera 
looking at a descendant um, and he's writing in this book and behind him is, I guess, his wife doing something, preparing a meal maybe, and it just kind of gets closer, 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 and then it ends. Then I woke up, you know, and as an eight-year-old, most of this didn't register. I mean, it, I had no framework, you know, for what I, for, for this dream, but I remembered it very clearly and I was kind of amazed because it was a pretty cool dream. Um, but the interesting thing about it is this dream has remained like a memory, very, very clear my entire life. So I remember everything. I remember the scenes. I remember all the details. I remember it like I, you know, better than a normal memory and certainly better than any other dream I ever had. Wow. So it's a sort of a strange thing. It's not like a normal dream because you know how dreams fade. Yeah. Like, this doesn't fade. This doesn't fade. I can see it. You know, I can remember it just like, you know, like it happened an hour ago. So it's it's really kind of a strange thing. So anyway, I didn't know what to make of it. I just kind of forgot about it. Didn't think about it. But then, um, you know, decades later, when I was working in tech and working on all this AI and knowledge-related stuff, somehow my path kind of led me back to knowledge and cataloging, cataloging knowledge. And, you know, at one point, I don't know why, but I started thinking, I wonder, you know, what would happen if you know, there was some kind of extinction-level event on Earth? What would happen to all of our history and knowledge? And as I started researching it, it became, you know, very apparent very quickly that um, we actually live in the most ephemeral civilization that's ever, ever existed. Ever, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Previous civilizations, ancient civilizations, you know, preserved their knowledge in stone yep. or, 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 you know, ceramic or metal, you know. Our knowledge is preserved in, you know, paper and plastic um, or magnetic media that won't last. And, you know, if something terrible were to happen, any kind of serious event or, you know, it doesn't even have to be an extinction level event. But Well, even books are ephemeral. Yeah, of course. Fragile, incredibly fragile. Yeah, uh, you know, and microfilm and film and all these different technologies that we've developed, um, most of which we can't even read anymore. You know, they have a very short shelf life. Digital technologies have also, um, we, we, we forget how to read them, but they also oxidize. Um, so it turns out, as I researched this, that pretty much all of the, the knowledge that we've amassed would be gone in a few decades at most um, if the power went out, if it didn't come back on. Um, and so, um, you know, there... That, what, we're, started... we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold it there because sure. I've got a really crucial question, but I want you to finish the outline, the arc of this amazing story. And when you say it kind of drifted away, I presume you mean it wasn't the center of your focus, but when you started thinking about the subject, the details of the dream came back. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak. He is architect of uh, a kind of a cottage industry of dedicated putting time capsules in places where they will be essentially immortal out in the solar system. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Hogland and his fascinating guests. 
join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, October 22nd of 2022. A lot of twos there. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak, who is the architect of a whole new generation of modern time capsules, trying to preserve, encapsulate, in readable media that are both readily understandable by some future descendants of us, if we're still here, or someone from out there, if they kind of wander by, and are long enough lived that they will physically survive the vicissitudes of being in a vacuum in space, like on the moon. We're going to get to all this. So, Nova, at, when, when you're eight, you have this astonishing dream, which is kind of like a fast-forward of your life, your mission in the dream, and then you look at successors, descendants, God knows how many generations, and then it comes up to a denouement and then ends and you wake up and you go, wow, that was cool, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I was sort of amazed. Um, but, you know, also as an eight-year-old kid, you don't know that dreams aren't usually like that. So, now, did you have any reference like Twilight Zone, Star Trek, no, the card no, thingy? So, no. so this was like out of the blue. Yeah, I mean, it was what the seventies. Yeah, um, I was. So, a lot of that stuff hadn't happened yet, um, and I was a kid, not really exposed to much media. Um, so, you know, ter- concepts like nuclear winter and you know, time capsules, things like that, were not in my world. So it was a lot of stuff I didn't understand, actually. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, rather than jump to the end, why don't we go through and track through uh, what you have decided to do in this life and then what your perspectives now as a mature adult looking back at that dream, what you think it might have been saying and where it might have come from. Okay. Uh, So... Later in my career, when I ended up working on knowledge-based technologies, AI and knowledge management and, and semantic technologies and so forth, um, I got interested in, in how we would preserve knowledge and how we could communicate knowledge across cultures or maybe even species. Um, and it led me to look at the ephemerality of our civilization and its knowledge. Um, and as I learned more about that, uh, I, I decided it would be an interesting project to try to preserve our civilization's knowledge for a longer period of time. Um, you know, because if anything uh, were to happen, any extinction-level event or a nuclear war, anything like that, uh, we would lose most, if not all, of our history, science, culture, or you know, all the stuff that we've worked so hard for. Uh, we'd lose it. It would be gone um, in a matter of decades because the media, the storage media we use. Well, even much sooner, because if you lose electricity, you lose everything. Right. Well, I mean, books, you know, depending on the condition, could last, you know, 50 to 100 years or a few hundred years if they're humidity, really in good condition. Humidity. Yeah. They, they don't last know, very well microbes, in humidity. Microbes. Yeah. Come on. Water. Most of, most of our books yeah. without electricity, air conditioning, you know, they will go so one generation. Did you ever read a, a incredible novel called The Earth Abides by George Stewart? No. Oh, 
Uh, he's gone, but I'm going to get his, his guy on who's kind of taken over the role. George Stewart was an academic in Berkeley in the 60s who wrote this incredible prophetic novel, kind of like what you just described, except set in the Bay Area, and the bridges are kind of like the time markers of the original naive, oh, we can put it all back together in five years. Uh, the, the, the Soviets launch a biological attack and wipe out almost everybody, but leave all the infrastructure intact. Mm-hmm. And then the happy guys, the, 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 the positive, optimistic guys say, oh, we can just put it back together. And then the novel tracks through how that just is not possible. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. an incredibly prescient novel for, unfortunately, now. Yeah. Well, um, as I looked into this, we found there had been some attempts at designing storage media that could survive a nuclear war. Um, different types of disks had been created and tested at Los Alamos, uh, in fact, using nickel as a storage medium, writing it into nickel, and using analog uh, etching rather than some kind of digital storage so that you could see it with a microscope. So like, think of it as... Like with lasers? Um, laser, lasers is one way to do beam. it. That was one way, yeah. Using um, electron beams was one way, but that was very expensive and, sl- and, and sort of slow. Um, later, uh, a scientist out, um, out of Kodak named Bruce Haw developed... Um, a way to um, grow uh, nickel uh, surface relief images, um, sort of the way that you grow um, computer chips, oh, semiconductors. Crystal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so essentially growing the nickel with a, a kind of electrolysis process, depositing it you know, one atom at a time on glass that had been etched with a laser, and then growing the nickel and then generating... Um, these sort of nickel discs this way. He, he, he developed a way to do this quickly. And so essentially you could think of it as microfiche, but smaller. So it's nanofiche, not microfiche. Mm-hmm. The images are much smaller, um, but it's, and they're in nickel rather than in you know, photographic film. And nickel is an element. It doesn't decay. It doesn't oxidize. Um, and uh, they did a lot of testing and found that this medium... Uh, could last for millions or wow. even billions of years. And all you would need was the equivalent of a 16th, 17th, 18th century microscope. Yeah, 17th century microscope, in fact. Um, and so basically, um, the microscope technology that, that we had in the 1700s was sufficient to magnify uh, these to the extent that you could read them. So, so wait, wait, wait. Let me. I'm, I'm going to interrupt now because you know, I'm. If, if I get lost, other people can get lost too. How would someone, ten thousand years from now, we had a nuclear winter, we're all back to caves. You know, we're trying to figure out what those big hulking buildings are that are decaying in ruin, and there are no books left, of course. How do they know when they find a disc with nickel on it that they should look at it with a microscope? Right. Well, what we actually did was. Um, these disks are layers, uh, many layers of, of disks actually in a stack. You could think of it as like a, a stack of disks. Um, now, the ones we sent to space are super thin. So a stack of disks is actually no thicker than a normal CD that mm. has many disks in it. But uh, if we put them on Earth, of course, they could be thicker because we don't have any reason to make them thin. There's no mass limitation. Um, but what we do is at the at the top, the images are much larger; they're naked eye visible. So you can t- you can see um, that there's stuff here. You can see you can see words and images etched on the top layer that you can read with your naked eye. But how do you know the language that'll survive? Mm, well, we use pictures. So the first l- few layers of these disc disc stacks, we call them arcs, um, are really a primer that. Um, what we did was we took all the visual dictionaries that have ever been published um, in every language. There's a whole bunch of visual dictionaries that translate into five languages, actually. Hmm. So we, we took all of the visual dictionaries that exist, um, and we printed them onto this nickel. So You the, mean like those little pictograms you see in restrooms on airlines in Italy or 
Russia mm-hmm. or whatever. Well, yeah, but there actually are some amazing visual dictionaries that were created for kids that are really, really good that have, you know, the earth with every type of earth system or biology or, you know, t- technologies of various kinds. They go into huge detail and they're beautiful with, you know, all kinds of expanded diagrams and, and call outs that show, you know, what is each thing? What is it called in multiple languages? You know, a house with every part of a house, how it's built and everything visually illustrated um, with everything identified in five languages, for example. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of these books. They're great. Um, so what we did is we took all these visual dictionaries, which collectively illustrate perhaps a million or more concepts um, and connect them to words in multiple languages. We took all of those and we etched them um, to Nanofish. And then the next layers were uh, a data set uh, basically that um, has every known language on Earth translated, starting with those five languages, it then translates into every known language that, we've, that, we, that we know of, alive or dead, every single language. So there's, a, there's a, about, a, I don't know, thousands of languages and billions of translations between them. So it goes from the pictures of you know, everything that you know, we know of in our kind of day-to-day lives to five languages, and then from those five languages to every other language. So it, it builds a conceptual model that's anchored in pictures. Because you, act, you have to have something you know, that these words refer to for the data set to have any meaning. Otherwise, it's, it, it's symbolic, but what does it mean, right? But here, we're anchoring it in pictures. So we had to make one key assumption, which is that whoever finds this in the future, the audience that we're writing it for, has, they have eyes. Um, and they're you know, roughly our size. They can see things of this scale. They can see these pictures. As long as they can see these pictures, you know, the pictures connect to symbols, the symbols connect to words, the words then connect to you know, language models that are fully fleshed out and translated to every other language. And then from there, once the languages have been anchored in pictures, we have the Wikipedia, the full English Wikipedia, um, something like a thousand dictionaries and encyclopedias, um, thirty thousand uh, books covering every subject, every language at a university level, um, and then a whole bunch of secret archives of interesting collections of things, including <laughs> the secret history of the world, everything to know, everything about UFOs, you know, everything about every spiritual tradition, um, you know, and 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 many many other secret archives. David Copperfield's. All of the secrets to all of his magic tricks are in there. He gave them to us. And many, many interesting vaults uh, are in there. All right. Let me ask another dumb question. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got data at a nano level that requires a microscope to read it, but you've got something big enough on the nickel-coated glass discs. Glass is very Well, fragile. those are different. So, no. So, let's let's be clear. Glass is used to make these nickel discs, but there's two different technologies that we use. Okay. Uh, what we said with Elon Musk was was actually written with a femtosecond laser into a quartz crystal, and that was digital data. So, the, the Isaac Asimov Foundation trilogy was sent in his Roadster inside of a quartz crystal um, using a special technology for etching, essentially um, creating tiny little... Um, diffractive dots inside this crystal that could be read um, with a special type of um, microscope. But that technology is digital. So you'd have to have very advanced technology to read it. The nickel technology, um, we use glass to grow the nickel, but the nickel itself is naked eye visible. You don't need any kind of digital technology to see and interpret what's on the disk. So these are just sheets, pictures. These are just sheets of nickel. They're, they are, yeah, they are exactly the size and shape of a DVD. But if you look at them under a microscope, they've got, you know, on each layer, about 20,000 tiny little black and white images, you know, photographic images. So if your archive is meant to store the entire current knowledge of humanity, you got to have more than one nickel disc, right? Oh, absolutely. What uh, in happens fact, if they well, get well, separated? Well, okay. So 
first of all, just to be clear, the way this disk stack is designed, it's like a staircase of knowledge. So first it starts at you know big enough things that you can see them and you know it's interesting. They teach you what you need to, to get to the smaller uh, levels, including how to build a better microscope. And ultimately, these layer, the primer also includes everything you need to know to build a computer and all the software to read the digital layers, because we also have digital layers mm. that store more data. But obviously, you need to know how to read all that. So we included all of the software, all of the codecs, all of everything you would need. This sounds so daunting because people have no idea. You know, they've seen all these movies, mm -hmm. End of the World and Struggling Survivors. I mean, George Stewart's novel is very naive. Oh, we'll just pick up the pieces. You have no idea how hard this is. Yeah, well, this well, is a Rosetta you, you, style. You probably know. Well, I know because yeah, we've built you've been at but it's, it, a, but, it's but, a Rosetta but style. For the average listener, the average person, this is almost impossible because we are so dumb without education. Well, the idea was to, to put, you know, education into the disks. So we built everything you everything you need, starting from pictures, to get to the ability to fully understand the Wikipedia and everything in it. But that means you have to have the whole damn archive. You can't have one disk. The disks are well, the way we design these, the disks are actually stuck together with epoxy. So it, it's difficult to separate the disks. But um, if that were to happen, um, well, we have... If, if they're stuck together with epoxy, like, 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 like a stack, how do you mm -hmm. get access to the surface where the nano images are? The epoxy, it doesn't touch, doesn't cover the images. It's in the central core. There's a, there's a cutout. There's a, there's a, just like any DVD, there's a circle in the middle. Right. And the, the disks are glued together at that point in the center. So you can separate them without damaging the data. So whoever finds it and realizes mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of stuff here knows mm -hmm. enough to separate the disk? Eventually, they'll figure out how to do that. Okay. Eventually, they'll figure out how to do that. Because it's not, it's, it's, it, it, you could break it. It's not, it's not glued together so, so uh, thickly that it would be hard to separate them, but it holds them together. Now, remember, the ones that we designed for space are different than the ones that we designed for Earth. Right. And we, we have both locations. So um, ultimately, you know, the goal was initially, let's put it on the moon. Um, and we did actually deliver it to the moon, although it had a rather hard landing. <laughs> it's possibly vaporized all over the surface. No, 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 no. The numbers, no, it, it's there. It's just in the dust. I think, yeah. It's, our, just, our it's hidden in the, all that moon dust. Well, our our we did a model of the of the of the crash of, of Space IL's bear sheet lander, right? And concluded that it was very likely that the disk actually survived uh, because of the fact that it was stronger than a black box, very flexible and thin, very light. It was on the out, it was on the outside of the spacecraft or the perimeter of it, um, and it wouldn't have uh, the heat was not sufficient to melt it. Um, so the only issue would be where you know. It, depending on how the impact took place and where it was at the moment of impact, you know, was it actually impacted or was it thrown? Did it bounce? Know, yes. Field? Yeah. Anyway. Long uh, one-sixth gravity parabolic arc. I mm -hmm. threw an arrow into the air. It fell to Earth. I know not where. Right. It may be 30 kilometers downfield. Oh. Um, we don't know. But in any case, um, just to be safe... We're sending it again. Um, oh, cool! It's, yeah, it's going to be flying. We, we have a new version of it. It's going to be flying um, on the upcoming a, on the astrobotic mission. It's going. Ah, redundancy, uh, redundancy. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the plan, the Arc mission's plan, is redundant copies all over the place, as many as we can afford to make. So space, uh, many locations, not only on the moon. I mean, the moon is a great location because. Any advanced civilization on Earth will eventually go there, and they'll find all these spacecrafts wrecked on the moon, and hopefully some of these crash sites, and you know, maybe some intact spacecraft in the future that contain the arcs, um, and they'll find them eventually. Um, you know, they'll find Elon Musk Roadster, which is a weird object, um, and maybe they'll find that crystal. Did you see those bizarre stories that were floated around the uh, the internet right after he launched that incredible experiment? And they're saying, oh, it's going to be torn to shreds by radiation. Yeah, but not our years. disc. 
Well, the the you know certain you know all the any plastics or anything like that, sure. But the metal won't. The metal will still be there. The yeah. car is the frame will be there, and the quartz disc will be there for you know as long as the solar system lasts. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the plan was to, to put these in as many places as we can. The moon is a good storage location, but actually, uh, I'm actually more interested in putting the, uh, these into Lagrange points. So our real goal is to deliver these to multiple Lagrange points around the solar system and to to do it in a way where they attract attention so that anybody with a telescope who's looking at that location um, would be able to see that there's something there that seems artificial. Um, and then maybe eventually we'll go there and get it. Of course, Well, space hang, hang on, hang on. We have a mission tonight called Lucy, mm -hmm. which is headed for the forward Lagrange point of Jupiter. I think that's the L four position mm -hmm. and it's going to stay it's going to go yeah. from asteroid to asteroid and wind up kind of just you know cohabiting with mm -hmm. all the other bizarre space junk that's there yeah how does it does it carry a time capsule it does lucy actually has a simple plaque with some some quotes by famous people um it's too bad they didn't know about our technology because you know we can store 30 million pages in the space of their plaque um, but their plaque is nice it is a time capsule. It's a very basic one, but um, nonetheless, yes, it'll be there. Well, they probably got um, the idea from us. Huh. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there are actually a number of time capsules around the solar system. Um, uh, the, the ones that you inspired with Carl Sagan, of course, are very famous. Yeah, well, they're uh, leaving. They're some of them are leaving, in going world. into the, the blackness of space yeah. where nobody will probably ever find them, unfortunately. Uh, you so never sure. know. Not you never sure. know. Yeah. But we want to put – ours are being put in places where it's easy to find them, hopefully. Um, and that includes Earth. Um, so on the surface of Earth um, or under the surface in caves or in other locations, um, bunkers and, and whatnot. Uh, we also want to store many copies redundantly around the planet um, in monuments perhaps designed to survive but be found. Um and those, of course, can also include microscopes and tools and all kinds of other stuff. We don't have the, the same kind of uh, mass limitations that we have with a spacecraft. So the plan, the ARC mission's plan is to build these bunkers um, or find existing bunkers and you know, put copies of these archives into all of these locations for safekeeping. And, um, of course, there... Well, you larger. sent me a link, which we got a whole bunch of stuff up in radio with pictures under under um, uh, Nova's uh, section. Just click on Nova and, uh, you know, follow the links and it'll take you to his section of radio with pictures. At the very end, toward the end, I think it's the second to last item, you sent a list of time capsules. Mm -hmm. There are apparently something between 10,000 and 15,000 time capsules worldwide that we're aware of, uh, some ancient ones, and most of them are kind of modern ones, and they're probably well. They they come in a variety of, of flavors. There are there are you know inscriptions. There's digital stuff, which of course will go away, uh, but there's enough of them redundancy that something may survive to be found if we're not. Yeah, but it might be you know the high school memories of the class of 1955. Exactly. exactly yes. So. You know, trying to make redundant time capsules that are really useful, um, you know, is a, is, a, is a specific type of task. It's an art form. It's, I mean, you know, you're, you're basically creating an industry. Well, it would be an industry if somebody would pay for it. But it's definitely, uh, it's, a it's a grand cultural project, like a Gothic cathedral. It's a, it's a project which is multidisciplinary. So is, is, is this in the show where you need to pitch for money to do more of these? Because well, if so anybody please, go if, ahead, yes. Well, if anybody listening, um, you know, happens to be very wealthy and wants to help support this, it's it is a way to well, create a legacy. Well, what about Musk? He said, interrupting. Um, yeah, potentially. I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is really top of mind for him right now. Um, but let's let's you know put a pin in that maybe. In any well, case, remember he has a Twitter site, and yes, all, well, our, yeah, all I, our all our people can send him emails saying, for God's sake, Salon. Fund the, the arch missions time capsule because you may not save humankind by putting uh, you know thousands of people on Mars in time. 
Well, we should we should at the very least the the arc mission should put a disc on everything that's going to remain in space or on another planet. Yep. yep. Um, because you know basically it's that simple. It's a numbers game. If you put enough copies in enough places, some of them are going to survive. Um, and and so this is a way to guarantee for the first time in human history, by the way, we can statistically guarantee that our civilization will not be lost. Um, actually, there have been thousands of civilizations, and they've all been lost, you know, with a few exceptions. Um, they've all been lost. And, you know, little bits and pieces remain here and there. Um, but we are the first civilization, if the Ark mission can actually complete what we're trying to do, we'll be able to be the first civilization that can make that guarantee for the first time in history that it won't be lost. And we can, you know, we can prove that it won't be lost because we have enough copies in enough places that there is no way, you know, an extinction level event on even at a planetary level could wipe out the knowledge base. Um, and so at least for as long as our solar system lasts, the knowledge base will last. Now, of course, you want to get really fancy, we can start moving it out of the solar system as well. This was kind of like the tragedy of um, Eric and me talking with Carl there at JPL uh, after we got back from our uh, sojourn that gave... They took us down to see Pioneer, and he and I walked up and looked in the bank of tank and all that, and we came down and we looked at each other, and he says, that damn thing has to carry some kind of a, a record of who we are. Because it was the first spacecraft touted as leaving the solar system. So we sold him back at JPL on the idea. And what he, was really neat is they had told us at TRW that they'd had to take an instrument off so there was five pounds of extra mass on the spacecraft that could be allocated for this. Wow. And I was thinking of, you know, like acrylic blocks and DNA and all. It, it got reduced to a plaque because NASA mm -hmm. headquarters, you know, couldn't think dimensionally but well, yeah. <laughs> the, the idea of doing something where if anybody picks it up in a million years they have the dna they have the cultural history they have video does your archive have video it has video it has photos it also has dna yeah. ah yeah so we we uh did uh, put some easter eggs in there um there there are still vaults that we haven't announced um, just because. Well, um, wait, 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 wait. The, are. the the first one that went on Barashit to the moon crashed, but mm -hmm. the disc is fine because it was not. We a believe high the disc. Event. We believe the disc is intact. Um, the disc contained, you know, all this knowledge. It also contained um, the DNA of twenty five people um, that was in there, and uh, and quite a bit of other wonderful stuff. Well, didn't you tell me at one point that I'm on the moon tonight? Uh, well, your book is. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Photos. Yep, your work is up there. That's amazing. Um, that is yeah. so amazing. That is um, blankety blank. Yep. That's a, as, as Biden there. would say, that's an effing big deal. Your website's up there. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> uh, yeah. So and you know, there's a there's a massive a massive archive of books and sixty seconds. Esoterica. Esoterica. Okay, I'll tell you what. We have reached the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Nova Svivak, and we're discussing archives that will last, that will outlast maybe humanity itself in our present iteration. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link 
in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>